Section 16 of Chesterfield's Letters to His Son. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter 33. London, March 25th, Old Style, 1748. Dear boy, I am in great joy at the written and the verbal accounts which I have lately received of you. The former, from Mr. Hart, the latter, from Mr. Trevanion, who has arrived here. They conspire to convince me that you employ your time well at Leipzig. I am glad to find you consult your own interest and your own pleasure so much, for the knowledge which you will acquire in these two years is equally necessary for both. I am likewise particularly pleased to find that you turn yourself to that sort of knowledge which is more peculiarly necessary for your destination, for Mr. Hart tells me you have read, with attention, Callier, Piquet, and Richelieu's letters. The memoirs of the Cardinal de Retz will both entertain and instruct you, they relate to a very interesting period of the French history, the ministry of Cardinal Mazarin, during the minority of Louis the Fourteenth. The characters of all the considerable people of that time are drawn, in a short, strong, and masterly manner, and the political reflections, which are most of them printed in italics, are the justest that I ever met with. They are not the labored reflections of a systematical closet politician, who, without the least experience of business, sits at home and writes maxims but they are the reflections which a great and able man formed from long experience and practice in great business. They are true conclusions, drawn from facts, not from speculations. As modern history is particularly your business, I will give you some rules to direct your study of it. It begins, properly, with Charlemagne, in the year 800. But as, in those times of ignorance, the priests and monks were almost the only people that could or did write, we have scarcely any histories of those times, but such as they have been pleased to give us, which are compounds of ignorance, superstition, and party zeal. So that a general notion of what is rather supposed, than really known to be, the history of the five or six following centuries, seems to be sufficient, and much time would be but ill-employed in a minute attention to those legends. But reserve your utmost care, and most diligent inquiries, from the fifteenth century and downward. Then learning began to revive, and credible histories to be written, Europe began to take the form, which, to some degree, it still retains. At least the foundations of the present great powers of Europe were then laid. Louis the Eleventh made France, in truth, a monarchy, or, as he used to say himself, la miteur de page. Before his time there were independent provinces in France, as the Duchy of Brittany, etc., whose princes tore it to pieces, and kept it in constant domestic confusion. Louis the Eleventh reduced all these petty states by fraud, force, or marriage, for he scrupled no means to obtain his ends. About that time, Ferdinand, king of Aragon, and Isabella his wife, queen of Castile, united the whole Spanish monarchy, and drove the Moors out of Spain, who had till then kept possession of Granada. About that time, too, the House of Austria laid the great foundations of its subsequent power, first, by the marriage of Maximilian with the heiress of Burgundy, then, by the marriage of his son Philip, Archduke of Austria, with Jane, the daughter of Isabella, Queen of Spain, and heiress of that whole kingdom, and of the West Indies. By the first of these marriages, the House of Austria acquired the seventeen provinces, and by the latter, Spain and America, all which centred in the person of Charles V, son of the above-mentioned Archduke Philip, the son of Maximilian. It was upon account of these two marriages that the following Latin distich was made, Bella Garant Alii, to Felix Austria Nube, Namqua Mars Alias, Dat Tibi Regna Venus. 
This immense power, which the Emperor Charles V found himself possessed of, gave him a desire for universal power, for people never desire all till they have gotten a great deal, and alarmed France. This sowed the seeds of that jealousy and enmity which have flourished ever since between those two great powers. Afterward the House of Austria was weakened by the division made by Charles V of his dominions, between his son, Philip II of Spain, and his brother Ferdinand, and has ever since been dwindling to the weak condition in which it is now. This is a most interesting part of the history of Europe, of which it is absolutely necessary that you should be exactly and minutely informed. There are, in the history of most countries, certain very remarkable eras, which deserve more particular inquiry and attention than the common run of history. Such is the revolt of the seventeen provinces, in the reign of Philip II of Spain, which ended in forming the present republic of the seven united provinces, whose independency was first allowed by Spain at the Treaty of Munster. Such was the extraordinary revolution of Portugal, in the year 1640, in favor of the present house of Braganza. Such is the famous revolution of Sweden, when Christian II of Denmark, who was also king of Sweden, was driven out by Gustavus Vasa. And such also is that memorable era in Denmark, of 1660, when the states of that kingdom made a voluntary surrender of all their rights and liberties to the crown, and changed that free state into the most absolute monarchy now in Europe. The Acta Regis, upon that occasion, are worth your perusing. These remarkable periods of modern history deserve your particular attention, and most of them have been treated singly by good historians, which are worth your reading. The revolutions of Sweden and of Portugal are most admirably well written by l'abbe de Vertot. They are short, and will not take twelve hours reading. There is another book which very well deserves your looking into, but not worth your buying at present, because it is not portable. If you can borrow or hire it, you should, and that is L'Histoire des Trottes de Pays, in two volumes, folio, which make part of the corps diplomatique. You will find there a short and clear history, and the substance of every treaty made in Europe, during the last century, from the Treaty of Vervin. Three parts in four of this book are not worth your reading, as they relate to treaties of very little importance. But if you select the most considerable ones, read them with attention, and take some notes, it will be of great use to you. Attend chiefly to those in which the great powers of Europe are the parties, such as the Treaty of the Pyrenees, between France and Spain, the Treaties of Nimeguen and Ryswick, but above all the Treaty of Munster should be most circumstantially and minutely known to you, as almost every treaty made since has some reference to it. For this, Père Bougeon is the best book you can read, as it takes in the Thirty Years' War, which preceded that treaty. The treaty itself, which is made a perpetual law of the empire, comes in the course of your lectures upon the Jus Publicum Imperii. In order to furnish you with materials for a letter, and at the same time to inform both you and myself of what it is right that we should know, pray answer me the following questions. How many companies are there in the Saxon regiments of foot? How many men in each company? How many troops in the regiments of horse and dragoons, and how many men in each? What number of commissioned and non-commissioned officers in a company of foot, or in a troop of horse or dragoons? Non-commissioned officers are all those below ensigns and cornets. What is the daily pay of a Saxon foot-soldier, dragoon, and trooper? What are the several ranks of etat major general? The etat major general is everything above colonel. The Austrians have no brigadiers, and the French have no major generals in their etat major. What have the Saxons? A Jew.
End of section 16. Read by Professor Heather Mai. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.